This is Delicious Revolution, a show about food. I think that's one of the fascinating things is genetic engineering is actually a brilliant solution for many of the agricultural problems that we have. It's a technical solution to the current system. I'm just not really sure if it's the solution to the system that we want. So that's, I am not against, but I'm wondering if we made all the changes to the food system um, that we should in order to make it more resilient and more equitable, how necessary and how interesting genetic modification would even be at that point. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Made by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wills. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of the food movement, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists. These people have a vision for a different food system. This first season of Delicious Revolution, we talk to friends who are deeply engaged with many aspects of food. These people have inspired us over many years with their thoughts and stories. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and you can find us at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. So Maiwa Montenegro is a seed scholar and a science writer who I know through many mutual friends, especially Annie Shattuck, um, and through the agroecology movement. I love to keep up with her written work in part because it's so well-crafted, but also because she continually brings up fresh analysis and perspective into conversations that can feel tired, like the conversations about the role of urban agriculture in the food system, the importance of biodiversity conservation, and the use of genetically modified organisms. She is a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley, where her research focuses on the social relations around seeds and seed systems. She also has a degree in molecular biology and a master's of science writing from MIT. She publishes work in academic journals and also widely in the popular press. She was an editor at Seed Magazine, and her work is published recently by Encia, Gastronomica, The Huffington Post, Grist.org, and many other publications. Public Radio International recently picked up a piece that we'll talk about related to genetically modified foods. So, Maya, welcome to The Delicious Revolution. Hi, Devin. So, I guess to start... Um, I want to start broadly about the food movement. And um, you've been writing about food and thinking about food for a long time now. So I'm curious to know, how did you get started? What got you interested at first? And also, um, let's talk just a little bit about, about um, what it's like to have this food movement grow up in popularity and, and its share of the public discourse um, over, this, over the time that you've been thinking about food. Sure. Well... I really um, got interested from a biological standpoint. When I was an undergrad at Williams College, I worked um, in a laboratory that focused on agrobacterium. So I was very much in the nitty-gritty of protein complexes, and my um, undergrad honors thesis was kind of trying to understand how this whole complex forms a pore through which agrobacterium sends DNA into the plant cell. So when you you start writing about this, and I started reading about what are the ultimate uses, and often when you write grant proposals, you're supposed to come up with applied um, ends for this for this technology, and that's when I started reading a little bit more about 
genetically modified crops and biofortification. Read a little bit about Norman Borlaug and MS Swaminathan, and I got interested in um, the intersection of biology, technology, and feeding the world, so to speak. <laughs> and was was your perspective critical from the start, or how did how did you first read things about Norman Barlog? Not critical at all. I I actually thought it was very exciting, and I thought um, coming out of undergrad that that would be a potential future career path for me to go into plant genetics and work on these um, systems myself. So that was that was uh, career goal number one, was Mini Maiwa MS Swaminathan. So what happened? So what happened is, well, I actually, at, at Williams, we take a lot of, um, a wide breadth of courses. And one of these courses that I took um, was one in science writing. Yeah. And when I wrote my organic chemistry, like final paper, or was orgo was so hard and I, I enjoyed it a lot. I did actually a lot of biochemistry undergrad, but the, I remember distinctly the comments that came back was like really beautifully written. And I'm like, oh, I did that whole synthesis and all I got was beautiful writing. But it also kind of, it, you know, it set off some bells in my my mind. And the year after I graduated was actually the inaugural year for the MIT Science Writing Program. It looked very exciting. It was 12 months, kind of compact, and I thought, I'm just going to go for it. So I applied and I, I spent a year at MIT um, with a wonderful group of um, professors who were kind of uh, a novelist, a beat reporter, a book writer, and kind of learned some of the the technical and structural components of journalism. And being at MIT, you also are like surrounded with scientists and you get to embed in labs there. Um, and I spent that year just um, researching and writing more about rice. So my interests in the biofortification and in agriculture continued through that journey in, in the science writing program. But to be very brief about it, I came out of it still thinking that that's what I would maybe want to do in the long term is be one of those um, biologists, one of those geneticists. So I actually finished MIT, applied to um, PhD programs in, in molecular biology, and then decided I'm not really sure yet. So this has been a long and windy path. I decided instead to um, work as a bookseller, I worked at Barnes and Noble for a year and a half. And while I was there shelving magazines, I came across Seed Magazine on the shelf. And I remember seeing profiles of Brian Greene, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. And they were treating scientists sort of like celebrities, giving them kind of attention and interesting conversations at the intersection of art and science and culture. So I applied for an internship, made my way to New York, and spent the next five years working as a staff editor and writer um, for Seed. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, recently, I just recently discovered in doing my research that, well, there was actually a time about half a year ago where I was like, oh, that's why Maya was such a good writer. She actually worked as a journalist for a long time. I did, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it made me feel better about my own writing when I read that. The other thing, you've become quite a, an expert in agrobiodiversity, and that's also what I study, um, but I think we have really different 
approaches and different areas of expertise within that thing. So like, will you help me out? It's actually not that hard or it's not that easy to define agrobiodiversity. So will you help me do it? Oh, will I help you define agrobiodiversity? Well, I find it challenging as well. And I've written passages and scratched them out and written them again because I think people from different um, academic backgrounds use them in different ways. You can look back at some of the CGIAR literature, and they're very much thinking about it in terms of plant genetics um, and agricultural. Um, in the context of agriculture, they're looking at um, genetic diversity. But if you look more from agroecology literature, I think Louise Jackson had some a nicely written um, definition, and they're looking more at the entire like web of interactions that take place in an agroecosystem. Um, so, and that's the definition that I would prefer. So, it would have to do with um, the diversity of genes, organisms, the you know communities, landscapes. What I like about, um, I think it was Yvette Perfecto who first came up with the, the planned agrobiodiversity yeah. and then the associated. Mm -hmm. So it's what the farmers intentionally introduce into the agroecosystem and then all of the other associated interactions that are kind of concomitant with that intentional practice. So I would like to have a mural or some kind of massive mosaic that demonstrates it because I think it's some, an, a concept that's hard to articulate in words. I've tried and I can, um, I'll send you my best effort, but I think um, an illustration would probably be a better way of getting across the, the multiple webs of interactions that we're talking about. Right. I, as shorthand, I've started saying it's just set of biodiversity in the world that farmers manage mm, and, that's know, handy is that, is that i like that it's a partial bit there, yeah if if yeah if you the associated would be on top of that because yeah, right. they aren't ne necessarily managing those like crop wild relatives right. that they wouldn't be managing but are important components of agrobiodiversity something that comes a across really strongly in your writing about crop, crop wild wild relatives about crop <laughs> <CWR>. wild relatives. <laughs> okay um, is this attention between conservation and innovation. And on the one hand, there's, there's like the first, the most obvious of that, I think is this idea that there's, um, there's new crop varieties and new technologies in agriculture that in some ways threaten old varieties and threaten the project of conservation. But on the other hand, there's this tension of the farmers innovation that have led to that biodiversity that we're trying to conserve in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I guess just talk about that a little bit. Like what, what is that tension? How does it come mm -hmm. up? Yeah, that's a, it's a fascinating, very difficult question to answer. Mm -hmm. Cause I think how you even begin to define innovation whether it's more a trajectory towards simplification and technology and labor-saving innovations versus ones that are engendering complexity and knowledge and labor embedded in what we are defining a technology and its utility. Um, with, in particular, these uh, the problems with loss of crop genetic diversity, I think there is a broad recognition amongst um, breeders and 
biologists who were very much a part of the green revolution paradigm that they have somewhat shot themselves in the foot and are realizing those green revolution approaches are eroding the very foundation of tomorrow's biotechnology and Kerry Fowler in particular, he's the head of the Svalbard seed bank has been at the forefront of saying, you know, biotechnology doesn't emerge magically from nowhere. You've got to have the substance and his approach has been largely ex situ conservation. So let's identify these hot spots where we're l- rapidly losing it and try to cache them, freeze them, dehydrate them and, and preserve them for future use. Um, and there are multiple ex situ institutions around the world that, that support that kind of effort. Um, on the other hand, there are people who um, recognize that XC2 will be insufficient in the long run as well because you have changing environmental circumstances. And most importantly, a bank seed doesn't have the knowledge context that a seed on the land does. So they're more in favor of in situ approaches where the seed is regenerated on the farm um, under the caretaking of the farmer and the surrounding communities. And that paradigm um, is actually very interestingly, and in a beautiful book written by um, Gary Paul Nabin, was kind of, uh, favored by Nikolai Vavilov, who is often um, remembered as like the world's first seed banker because he went around the world collecting seeds. But he also recognized that what really matters is um, being able to uh, regenerate biodiversity where it exists so that it has kind of the chance to evolve in those locally specific conditions and that's true insurance for the long term so there's um so gary navhan's he pushes it into the cultural realm too about where Mm -hmm. the uses and the beliefs and the um this cultural context of the the seeds. Yeah, so knowledge was actually shorthand for what is a much broader sphere of these these seeds are embedded in um, material production and livelihoods. They're um, embedded in the the belief systems of those communities and even in their languages. Farmers will have particular names for varieties. They might recognize and distinguish different varieties through their different Um, farmer taxonomies. And what I find really interesting is that very active recognition would lead a farmer to plant them as two separate varieties because they recognize them as distinct. Whereas if you only saw one, you might only plant one. And so you have material diversity in the biology being reproduced in that genetic material through the epistemic diversity, the knowledge that sets two things aside through the recognition Um, and that's names carry forward some of that recognition which is why it's really fun to look at farmer names for seeds and farmer names for variety Um, and there are studies that have compared that kind of diversity with the diversity that can be measured through things like molecular markers and they look at whether those actually coincide or don't so I find that really interesting I think you bring up a, a lot of time in a lot of these articles, um, this question of who the conservation is for or who benefits from certain kinds of conservation. Can you talk a little bit about, um, 
maybe some of the less obvious projects involved with ex situ conservation and gene banks, but also where where you've seen people push for um, conservation that benefits farmers. Well, I think conservation kind of, if we think in aggregate on the global scale, conservation has to benefit everyone because without this underlying genetic diversity in the agricultural supply, we're all doomed, you know? Mm-hmm. So, in, and that kind of, if we're thinking in scalar levels, the quote unquote global population mm-hmm. will benefit. Um, when it comes to uh, lower levels, I, I feel like um, right now the system really of ex situ conservation will tend to move germplasm through a pipeline in which extraction from a particular ecosystem or landscape and placement in a, in a gene bank, because those are uh, currently regulated under um, institutions like the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. It, it is a very, it's a weak system of um, uh, intellectual property. So it sets up what they call it a commons, but it has very uh, weak barriers against um, derivations of material being then uh, changed and um, commodified in some way, whether through plant variety protection, which is the common in Europe, um, or patents in the United States. So I think that movement of material germplasm off of the land even when they are nominally protected in a CGIAR, which is a public institution, um, the benefits will then tend to flow. Uh, if they flow back to farmers, they will generally return to them as a commodity. So, sure, it can, might be improved, but it comes improved as a at a price, and um, that's a very distinctive difference from an active con- conservation in situ. I'm not saying that breeding is bad or that breeding necessarily will disempower or impoverish farmers, but that has been the general trend of kind of a pipeline moving the germplasm off of the land, and when it returns, it returns as a proprietary seed. Mm -hmm. Um, And the breeding um, thus far in the more of a green revolution kind of breeding has been to improve it to be compatible with an industrial type of farming system. So as you return it to the farmer, it comes back with compatibility for pesticides and herbicides, for fertilizers, for irrigation equipment, and maybe not necessarily for the kind of locally specific conditions, the biodiversity, et cetera. And what I tried to cover in one of my first papers is it's certainly not uniform. Many farmers continue to plant their traditional varieties right alongside modern, in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. improved seats. But, um, and so there are many sorts of resistances to full homogenization and overtaking of improved seats everywhere. But a general trend is through of displacement of varieties, um, particularly if, uh, if they are seen as more efficient or superior to their backwards ways. So there's a lot of um, underlying cultural um, pressures as well to modernize and move towards what farmers are told are um, better and more modern ways of doing things. Right. And in Mexico, it took me a long time to figure out that 
when people had hybrid seeds planted, it didn't mean that they didn't have native seed corn seeds also that they managed. It also took me a long time to figure out that most of the time when people said they were planting hybrid seeds, they meant that they were planting varieties that had once come from hybrid seeds and were many generations past the F1 stage. And, um, had been they had been intentionally crossing with natives also yeah that's super interesting so there's a lot of creolization that goes on and many generations removed then they've made their own and i think that that's a really interesting thing to that's a more nuanced than is it um hybrid or land race it's something that is mixed yeah there's some fluidity between those yeah, things for sure I think it's the perfect time then to jump into talking about GMOs. And you, you say you write in your recent article that um, you've avoided the issue so far. <laughs> and I feel the same way. I totally feel the same way. I read the article and it felt like the most reasonable and level-headed look at GMOs. I was like, well, maybe we shouldn't be talking about frankenfoods. And maybe it's pretty suspect to say that yet another seed technology will feed everybody in the world, but we can talk about how these interact, how this technology functions in the context of economies and development projects and power relationships. So so I was surprised, I was actually surprised mm-hmm. to hear that you had gotten such a reaction out of this article. Oh, I think GMOs probably command the most ink online and in like popular discourse of any other issue in the food system at most events that I go to here that are related to the Berkeley Food Institute invariably there's a question about GMOs whether the subject of the conversation is related to GMOs or not mm-hmm. somebody will ask what about how how about GMOs so i was pretty prepared for this kind of reaction um and um I'll say that it's not entirely true that I avoided the issue until now. I did write about it in my days at Seed Magazine, and I was um, much more uh, of a proponent of um, genetic modification at the time, still more in line with my positivist science and technology, like an undying faith in their benefits. Um, So since that time, I've... um, learned a great deal about agroecology, about political ecology. Um, Just being here at Berkeley, you're kind of in a crucible of a lot of conversations about food justice and food sovereignty. Um, And honestly, that kind of transition has made me think more deeply about, let me say, who do these innovations benefit? And are they necessary? Are there lower-hanging fruit? And what are they, um, what kinds of systems are they currently embedded in, and is that something that um, is tractable or not? And I think that's a really interesting question. Is is, is a genetically modified seed um, necessarily bound up in patents? Is it necessarily going to engender corporate monopolies? Is it necessarily going to come packaged with an herbicide and all of the downstream impacts of spraying pesticides and herbicides on those seeds? Or can you kind of have this mental picture of a seed with a whole root system underneath. Can you pick that up without that root mass and move it into a different social ecological context? And I'm not really sure whether when you pick it up out of that is something else altogether. And it's um, 
it's a changed thing. I'm, I'm not sure what the boundaries of technology are sometimes. Because um, right now, one of the largest issues for me is, um, is the consolidation of the seed industry that has grown up around um, the coupling of patenting and other forms of intellectual property with the genetic modification. So the what we call the enclosure or the blocking of a farmer's right to replant and reproduce, um, I think is one of the <laughs> one of the rots at the core of the food system right now. And and it's um it's very much an entrenched way of thinking, particularly I think for farmers in the US, it's very it's very normal to view a seed as a commodity that you buy every year. And that historical memory has been pretty truncated, you know, since the 1930s. And Jack Kloppenberg has written a fascinating history of biotechnology called First the Seed. And very quickly, farmers were told that, learned that um, a seed is something that belongs to professionals. They breed them. And it's uh, outside of the hands of expertise of a, of a farmer. Um, of course, the um, sophistication of breeding and engineering is now at a level that most farmers probably don't have that kind of education to be engaging. But um, we've also created a system that makes it so. So I think that's one of the fascinating things is genetic engineering is actually a brilliant solution for many of the agricultural problems that we have. It's a technical solution to um, the current system. I'm just not really sure if it's the solution to the system that we want. So that's where I am right now in kind of this ongoing conversation around, around genetically modified crops. I am not against, but I'm wondering if we made all the changes to the food system um, that we should um, in order to make it more resilient and more equitable, how necessary and how interesting genetic modification would even be at that point? Do you really need a drought-tolerant variety of corn if you can just plant a drought-tolerant variety of one of the many, many land races of corn that are drought-tolerant or of other exactly. grains? Exactly, and if you were employing the right kinds of soil conservation practices, cover cropping that you increase the water infiltration rate into your soils at a higher level. You get a lot of drought resilience or drought resistance in your soil structure. Um, so with a lot of other um, agronomic techniques as well, I think the the tendency to focus on a solution that is just in, that, in the seed too um, kind of sets us off on a path of technological solutions when we can... Um, probably address a lot of the challenges with a more kind of systems approach. I think one of the extremes of the claims is that, that I think genetically modified genetic splices certainly can solve certain problems like Some like certain viruses. pests, yeah, certain viruses, but they're not going to solve hunger because hunger isn't really caused by a genetic defect or a lack of a trait. Right. There won't, but proponents will argue that if you introduce resistance to a virus or another pathogen, then you'll increase yield. And then yields will obviously feed more people, leading to hunger being solved. 
And this is why I think people who work more from a food justice or food sovereignty perspective have been working to shift the conversation away from yield as not being the sine qua non of food security, because there there's a very little correlation between those um, those figures. So let's talk a little bit about the reaction you've gotten from this. And uh, there have been, as you mentioned in the article itself, there's been a push to characterize critics of GMOs as uh, anti-scientific, the way that we have all asserted that skeptics of climate change are anti-scientific. Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of, have you got that kind of pushback? Yes. I. Um, there is even a website that's called we love vaccines and GMOs. It's a Facebook group. Um, so I, I think that that's a, it's a common uh, comparison of climate denialism, anti-vaccines, and anti-GMO as being all one and the same. Um, so I think one of my uh, goals in writing this piece was to... Um, push back against the idea of there being a consensus at all around the safety of genetically modified crops um, Mm -hmm. because multiple studies, I think, indicate that um, there is a lot of what we call um, undone science. You know, there's a lot of uh, research that uh, lacks sufficient statistical power in order to say anything conclusive. Um, There have been many, many studies that find uh, GMOs are safe when ingested by rodents or by horses or other livestock over 90 days. But um, there are there's a lot of uh, questions about whether those can be extrapolated to humans, what happens in the longer term. And there's been lots of ink expended over the back and forth over that. Yeah, 90 days is sufficient and, and on and on. Um, But what I'm also trying to get at in this piece is that I think we focus too narrowly on the nutritional and dietary effects of ingesting a genetically modified crop. I am actually not terrified of that aspect. I would eat a genetically modified soy, corn, wheat, and not go to bed fearing for my life. Um, I do it all the time, (laughs) probably, Um, since so many are unlabeled. Um, What I've tried to argue here is that that in itself is an overly narrow definition of safety. Um, You know, we're not looking at the effects that come when those seeds are packaged with Roundup and other herbicides. We aren't certainly not taking a... um, robust enough appraisal of the social effects, the cultural effects. There are um, economic analyses of enhanced farmer income, but they tend to come at it from a fairly reductionist and of cost and benefits economic perspective. They are not really looking at, um, you know, what happens with farmers who are displaced through a system that comes ushered in on the coattails of um, introduction of a genetically modified seed, farmers being um, coerced or or uh, encouraged to buy those seeds, gradually taking on more and more of the commodity um, products that come associated with those seeds, and um, 
you know, it's happening in Africa very much right now when, when, when they are pushing for um, laws that are more favorable for uh, genetically modified crops that uh, they work at. It works at many levels. It works at like at the marketing level, at the trade and intellectual property level that companies then kind of create a, a pathway for themselves to become more involved in the the local agri-food economies. And I see their GM more serving as um, as a wrench to kind of pry open the local food economies and make them more dependent on um, a system of commodity inputs. And that's an enormous change in the the fabric of rural livelihoods that is very hard to capture in any kind of cost benefit done at a kind of a reductionist scale. And we're trying to kind of look a little bit more um, at how you then assess uh, genetically modified organisms through a larger lens and. Um, so I'm working right now with some colleagues on that kind of assessment because I think that that's one that is is very challenging to do because it's not as um, quantitative in many ways. Um, you have to kind of look historically and then still keep an open mind. Does that mean that that locks in possibilities for the future or can they be still utilized in a different way? I'm holding out hope that they can, but again... It's one of those things for me that I'm more interested in getting to the justice components, to the diversity components, to the can we um, provide nutritious food for everyone than in ensuring that genetically modified seeds are included in getting there, you know? Right, right. Sure. So. Sure. For such a scientific technology and such a, a positivist rhetoric around them gmos and the debate around them have this way of like running headlong into social issues and to inequalities in power they just kind of crash into it in ways that seem like it's on accident i'm thinking specifically of that the michael specter's piece on a critical profile of vandana shiva in the new yorker about a year ago um where the focus seemed to be to take a profile of an activist and the main argument seemed to be that she is not a scientist. Um, it, and it felt to me like a kind of a smear piece that only could have been written about a woman and only mm-hmm. could have been written about a woman of color. Because mm-hmm. it seems hard to imagine writing a whole article like that about some, about a man, especially a man in a developed country and saying, well, he's not a valid activist because even though he has a PhD in, a scientific field. He's never worked as a scientist. That seems like a, a strange argument to make about why someone's activism is invalid. Mm-hmm. Did you have the same feeling about that piece? I I can totally see that perspective, and you might be right. Um, mm-hmm. I actually didn't have that reaction myself um, because I've seen similar kind of portrayals of other. Uh, activists and some heavyweight journalists who are not scientists and so then they're portrayed as fringe or they're portrayed as only activists we have a lot of people who work at NGOs who then the 
you know, pro-GMO um, side or contingent will say they aren't credible because they work at um, the, a nonprofit organization. Um, that's kind of the third element of what I was trying to get at in this piece mm-hmm. is the, this idea that science itself is never non-neutral, that people who, whether they work at an NGO or whether they work um, at an academic uh in an academic context that the the act of of doing science is always going to be kind of impregnated with political and social um, influences. So I find, I mean, you might be right in terms of this kind of uh, story on Vanana Shiva, but people have told me not long ago that, you know, my, Michael Pollan can't be trusted because, you know, he's just a journalist. Uh, and okay. And I'm finding in my own research and kind of learning curve that there's also a lot more fluidity between um, between science and non-science, between what, what is practical and experiential and situated knowledge that comes from, you know, decades of farming or decades of food labor or decades of other kinds of organizational work that, you know, scientists can learn equally from that other kind of knowledge. Um, and can we have a more, a different approach to, uh, to engaging in conversations? I really like the term Peter Rossett uses, the dialogo de saberes, the dialogue of knowledges. So science is one way of thinking about things, but it shouldn't be kind of this hierarchy where it's better than the other ways. It's different. But how do we kind of engage in a more, I call it epistemic humility, mm-hmm. um, a conversation that has different perspectives and different kinds of expertise because um, sure you can dismiss somebody as being um, they don't have the PhD um, and in this case Vandana Shiva did but uh, yeah I think in order to tackle this these many huge challenges of the food system we're definitely going to need more than just science we need a, a science that's uh, and if in constant dialogue with other knowledges. So it turns out that even scientists at universities have other things going on in their lives that tie them to interest about biotechnology. And I'm thinking about this New York Times piece that they requested some emails um, through a Freedom of Information Act from a handful of academics and their contacts at Monsanto and the Biotechnology Industry Association and Stonyfield Farm. When we were talking before this, you were saying that you were really interested in this expose. Well, I think the Lipton piece in the New York Times kind of broke out into the open what many people who have worked in this area have kind of long known about and suspected. I think having the email trail and seeing names and seeing like the actual, you know, black and white. Um, arrangements for flying people to conferences paid for by Dow or paid for by Monsanto to speak as as a unbiased and scientific uh, party in favor of of the technology. I think that that's really what kind of got this this expose um, going. And other journalists have followed up on the New York Times piece and gone in, even into further detail um, through their own readings of the emails. Um, I think what comes out of that is 
that it's actually more than just a handful of scientists is that there's a, a very large network of influence that propagates through researchers, through university administrators, through the um, PR firms and through lobbyists that it becomes this very uh, kind of dense dynamic that has been pushing at high levels of policy to create more funding and institutional support for biotechnology at research institutions. And you, you see then how kind of you get a snowballing or a, a, a self-reinforcing effect for more research in this area, more validation of this as the way forward, the way to feed the world. And the more reinforcement there is, then the more science there is for it. So, um, but some people who wrote on comments to the article were saying that uh, I'm obviously buying into the constructionism of GMOs, that I'm not understanding that all of the anti-GMO activists are constructing their own narratives and their own anti-science storytelling. And that wasn't at all what I was trying to say, because of course we're all in this kind of very messy and very kind of everybody uses narratives and stories and nobody is unbiased in what they're doing. And that's what I was trying to get at is there is no science that is somehow pristine and above the floor of culture and society and politics. Um, and that's what's interesting about it, but it's also what makes it quite challenging for a journalist. Their mission should not be to go out and find the pure, unbiased, impartial perspective of the scientist because it it's not there. Um, and I, I don't mean to say that it's bad corporate money flowing to good unbiased science and, you know, sullying their pristine research and we need to cut those ties off. What I'm trying to say is that there's deep historical layering to why some sciences exist. Why are they supported at certain institutions? Why do we have a molecular biology department or a biotech institute at this school and plant breeding is down in the dumps? Why is there no biological control department anymore at Berkeley, why certain communities of researchers are around today and others aren't, it's much more than individual cognitive bias through money or through a paid flight to Pittsburgh. So that's, I didn't actually get to tell all of that story, but I'm working on another paper right now that deals more with the um, creation of scientific legitimacy and how it relates to agroecology and the agroecology movement. So I'm kind of in that headspace right now, thinking about how um, agroecologists can learn from that as well. Oh, great. I can't wait to read that <laughs> and think about it all the time. Um, because there's this, this, as scientists, there's this dance that we do when we, um, when we work closely with farmers and especially farmers far away from the big institutions of science to, um, to, to try to come at it from some common ground and try to have a dialogo de saberes when we're in our work. But then there's also this other dance that we do when we try to present what we found in those places in a scientific context. Um, so 
So uh, I think we're playing all the time with that privilege way that that scientific knowledge is is, um, seen in the world. And we hope that it does some good. Yeah. Once we, you know, put in the time to have PhDs. Yeah, I know. That's a tough thing because here I am trying to get my own PhD and become a credible source of knowledge. Um, And where I think we're going in this article right now is that we need multiple bases of legitimacy. So we, there is very much a value in kind of the thorough empirical research and the data collection and a methodological approach to kind of systematizing what we look at, how we process it, the, you know, the tradition of peer review and so forth. But um, I don't think we'll ever make any headway towards getting kind of to the broader transformation of this food system that is embedded in law that is embedded in markets that's embedded in many of the kind of larger structural processes of society if we aren't simultaneously drawing on bases of legitimacy that exist in those spheres if we aren't kind of drawing from social movements in particular and asking them to take up the discourse and language of agroecology if we aren't um, dialoguing with policymakers, if we aren't talking to farmers and coming at it from science is going to give you a solution um you know it has not worked so well in climate science so i don't think that it's going to work so well in in agriculture and food systems which in some ways is um many times more complicated so great thanks i think that's a great place to leave it in that um, and thanks so much, Myla. Um, just, I want to ask, where are what's the best way to follow along with your work and to read the most recent? Mm. Well, I have become more of a Twitter user <laughs> lately, and you can find me on Twitter at Myla Montenegro. Um, occasionally, I post to uh, the Friday Food Links. It's a kind of uh, roundup of news and views, and that's at the Berkeley Food Institute, so bfi.org. Um, and uh, I am also on Facebook, but I'm trying to limit my social media because I'm supposed to be writing, <laughs> <Good> <laughs> writing <call>. my <laughs> writing my research. Um, but I'm also available by email for people who would really like to get in touch. I think email offers a little bit more space for sure. for a, a conversation. So. Sounds good. And we'll have, as always, links. Well, you will have your Twitter and links to those websites that you mentioned. And also all those books that you mentioned. You mentioned my five books. Oh, great. Excellent. On the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. And so thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. And and, um, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Devin. It was really my pleasure. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wills. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can find us at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. You can get in touch with us there, too. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening.